Good morning, everyone. Today I am preaching Romans 4, verses 13 to 25, so open your Bibles there. It's going to be two parts this week and next, and we'll pretty much look at verses 13 to 18 today. So it's fully assured part one today. Well, the idea is that God's salvation promises are guaranteed by grace and received through faith. God's fully guaranteed promise, fully assured. It is not by works, even though sometimes we foolishly think it is. I think there's a temptation to try to get God's promise in our own way and timing, and this is what Romans 4 addresses. So if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read Romans 4, verses 13 to 25. Before I read, let me just remind you, I'm reading the Word of God, and I say often it is inerrant, it is inspired, it is infallible, and those aren't just words, they, they mean something uh, very significant, and you know, I could get up here every week and tell you a bunch of stories, uh, string a bunch of verses together and, and uh, all that. Um, what's most important is reading and explaining and applying what God has said in his word and doing it in context and handling the word accurately and faithfully and obviously to engage those that are present so i just want you to be aware this is the word of god that i'm going to read for the promise to abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs faith is null and the promise is void the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that your salvation promises are not just historical, they're not just in the past, but they are for our sake as well. And thank you, Lord, that you draw us to yourself to believe in you who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing. I pray that you would use your word in our hearts today as we contemplate it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, please be seated. So God's salvation promises are guaranteed by grace and received through faith. This is the point that's getting made over and over again in Romans. And I want to, to bring this up right at the start that it's very easy to think, well, so there's this passage, you know, Romans 4, 13 to 25, and somehow to mistakenly think it's just standalone. This is part of a chapter, it is part of a whole book, it is part of a whole testament, it is part of a whole Bible that has a golden thread of God's salvation purposes running all the way through it. And so I want you to remember that, and it's not just one standalone passage here. In fact, in fact, uh, what you should do is put markers in chapters uh, 15, 16, and 17 of Genesis, some in your Bible, do, get a piece of paper, put a marker in Genesis, starting at verse, chapter 15, and then have your marker here in Romans 4, and then also put a marker in Galatians chapter 3, because we're going to be looking at all of those, and I just got to tell you, Galatians 3 and Romans 4 are hitting a lot of the main, same points, just in different ways, okay, so that's very important, and it's all pointing back to Genesis, and so Keep those markers there, and you'll be all set for the next few weeks, all right? So Romans is, is uh, hugely about what it means to be justified by faith. And as a result of being justified by faith, we are unashamed of the gospel, we're uncondemned by sin, and probably the, the toughest thing for us, we are to be unconformed to the world. And God's salvation promises are guaranteed. They are guaranteed by grace, they're received by faith. We do make this mistake sometimes to think that somehow uh, it's about what we do. And Romans clears that up. And so does Galatians chapter 3 and really the testimony of the entire Bible. God's salvation promises are sure. They are, are, are assured. They're guaranteed. And therefore, a believer's eternal destiny is secure. And it's all by grace through faith in Christ. And so Romans is all about believing in the gospel and resting in the gospel and rejoicing in the gospel and living the gospel. And what Paul is doing here in Romans, he's spending a lot of time, a very large amount of time, explaining that there is absolutely no alternative to justification by faith. So he is literally eliminating every human alternative that gets presented. And he states the doctrine of justification by faith clearly in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And then literally from there all the way to pretty much the end of chapter 3, he's showing literally over and over again how futile it is to try to get right with God any other way. It's just useless. So in Romans chapter 1, um, we see this truth. You know, God rescues only believers, and he is rightly angry with the rest of the world. And that is his righteous uh, prerogative. And then Romans 2, you see that everyone's under sin. It doesn't matter if you're a religious insider. It doesn't matter if you're a religious, irreligious outsider. If you don't know Christ, you are under sin's power. And then in chapter 3, we see very clearly 
that it, God is, is absolutely righteous and right to rescue everyone who believes in Christ. This is what we've been seeing. And so Romans 4, Paul is essentially using Abraham as an example of what he already said. Okay, so what he said in chapter 3, he's basically saying, now here is exhibit A regarding faith. Here's your illustration. Basically a biography, a short biography, a synopsis of Abraham's life. Okay, and so last week we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 4, that faith is counted as righteousness to all who believe the gospel. So Abraham and all the Old Testament believers uh, had faith in the Christ to come. We, now, we trust in the finished work of Christ at the cross. So Abraham and every true believer onward, their faith is counted as righteousness because they're believing the gospel. And you might remember, I mentioned this last week, that Galatians chapter 3 tells us that the, the scriptures, the word of God, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So even in the Old Testament, they were believing the gospel promises before uh, the cross. So today, now we're in Romans 4, we're going to start at verse 13, uh, fully assured, part one today, that, that God's salvation promises are guaranteed by grace and received through faith. Uh, just a little preview for next week, we're going to look at uh, faith's encouragement, how Abraham was fully convinced that was in verses 19 to 22, and then faith's perseverance and what God does in our salvation. But let's dive into verse 13. Go ahead and start and look at verse 13. It begins with the word for. It's the Greek word gar, for, and it, what it shows us, it's a very important word here for us, it shows us that verses 13 to 25 are closely connected to verses 1 through 12, which seems like an obvious point, but again, that tendency we have to think, so now we're starting something brand new. So this is continuing the discussion that has already been going on. So, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. A very clear statement there. Paul is making a great argument that the doctrine of justification by faith is, is, is by faith, not by works, and he's helping us understand it. He's helping us understand it by talking about Abraham. He's talking about the promise to Abraham. And it wasn't through the law. The law wasn't even in effect at that point. It was through faith. And this word promise is big. Okay? You'll see it throughout this passage several times. Promise, the Greek word epangelia, and it literally permeates the passage. It, it bleeds through the whole passage. It is not just, well, here and here and here and here. But the, the idea of promise, it, literally, it permeates the passage. And he is using promise in the idea of a guarantee. This is guaranteed, this blessing. Now, last week we looked, and there was a quote, uh, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, where David is being quoted. He said, the blessing that God blesses on the one whom he doesn't count their sins against them, but counts their, righteous, their faith as righteousness, this blessing this, this guarantee, this promise, it's talking about salvation. 
Now you look at what the promise was to Abraham, and there was a promise of land in chapter 15. There was a promise of a people in chapter 13 and 15. There was a promise of blessing right from the very start in chapter 12. But the biggest part of the promise, the the majority was of a redeemer who would come. Again, going back to Galatians 3.8, there was a, a preaching to Abraham of the gospel before, long, long before the cross. So there's this redeemer that's going to come, and it, it makes it very clear that Abraham was trusting in that promised redeemer. And so he would be an heir of the world, and those who follow after in faith would be heirs. So now we need to go to, uh, to Galatians 3. I told you you need to mark these things, so go to Galatians 3. We're going to be flipping back and forth a few times. Go to Galatians 3 and verse 16. Look at that with me. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. I, I read this last week as well. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So not Isaac, but Christ. So, of course, the seed, the offspring, was Christ, not Isaac. The short-term fulfillment of that promise was Isaac. The ultimate fulfillment was Christ. The point he's making is, it's not human ancestry from Abraham, but spiritually following his example of faith that makes a believer an heir of the promise, of the inheritance. Not through the law, but righteousness of faith. There were all sorts of people saying, oh no, it's through the law. You've got to follow this. In fact, the Judaizers, they're are really being you know, shouted down very appropriately in, in Galatians chapter 3, were saying to Gentiles, you need to become Jews in order to become Christians. Absolutely false. And so no human ancestry from Abraham, but spiritually following his example of faith. That makes you an heir of the inheritance, of the promise. It's not through the law, it's through the righteousness of faith. This points out the universal fatherhood of Abraham, father of many nations, that any and all who come to God by grace through faith are, in essence, children of Abraham. They followed in that faith. This is very important for us because has, never has mankind been able to work their way to God. There has never been anything put in place where by an outward action or an outward ceremony, you could make yourself right with God. The promised inheritance is received by faith, not by keeping the law. The law is very clear, and Galatians tells us this. The law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. It shows us our need of Christ. It's not some alternative you know, track you can take to work even harder and earn your way to God. It's literally a, a tutor to tell you, no, you're going the wrong way. You need to believe in Jesus and his finished work. And so, trying to get the promise by keeping rules and regulation will fail because of our disobedience. Important thing here, Paul is not hammering those who are trying to live by law. He was comforting those who wanted to live by faith. He was comforting those who rely on promise. He's reminding them, your inheritance is due to God's gracious promise, not your devotion. Isn't it easy for all of us to 
think that our devotion to God is what gets us you know, better standing with God? Isn't it true that sometimes we, we start thinking that all the things that we're doing in life are actually adding to our account? So now you need to go back over to Galatians with me. And I want you to see a very strong word, very first word in Galatians chapter 3. Foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians. In fact, he doesn't just stop there. He says, who put a spell on you? Who cast a spell on you? Who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you into thinking something that isn't true? And he basically says, so what was started by the Spirit of God is now being completed in the flesh? This is the exact temptation that we all can slip into. Well, you know, Jesus saves me, but it's up to me to meet him at the pearly gates of heaven, you know, and work really hard to get there. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no hard work in the Christian life. Paul talked about laboring and striving with God's power that's at work in him. He talked about spending and being spent for people's souls. But what we're talking about here is being right with God, having right standing with God, being justified by faith, not what you do. And so Paul's making very clear in Galatians as well as in Romans, no, it isn't your devotion. Get over your devotion. It's God's grace. You're saved by grace. So you are to live by grace. You are sanctified by grace. Again, that doesn't take away the idea that we're responsible before God, that we need to obey God. It's the idea of what are you basing your standing with God on? Look at verse 14. If, if uh, the adherents of the law are, are heirs, faith is null, the promise void. Null and void. No effect. Uh, vain, futile. You take Genesis 15, 6 and kind of throw it out the window. Abraham became right with God by faith. Oh no, someone found a different way. Faith is null and promise is void. This is like speaking in ridiculous terms like this is not gonna happen. But if you're living this way, that's pretty much the way it plays out for you. If, if observing the law makes you right with God, but, uh, then faith in the promise of God has no role to play. Believing and doing don't fit in that regard. So Galatians 3.18, you want to go back to Galatians 3? 3.18, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So don't start thinking that way. Don't think that it comes by law. Only faith can receive the promises of God. If his promise is received by obedience to the law, then faith is canceled out. And, and here's the other thing. That law, no one can keep it. If you make a promise dependent on an impossible condition, it's nullified. Failure to keep the law is what prevents those who rely on the law from obtaining the promise. So it's not going to work. They're in a dead-end street there. And verse 15 is telling us why. The law brings wrath. The law brings wrath. What does that mean? It means the more that you try to work your way to God by keeping rules and regulations, the more you prove you're unable to do so, and you just bring more judgment on yourself. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. And now that doesn't mean there's no sin apart from the law. Sin existed before the law. 
Romans 2 made it really clear, God's wrath is unleashed on those who have no law, but if you transgress the law, literally you got a greater responsibility for it because it's high-handed rebellion against God on a standard that you know. Does that make sense? If you know it and then you don't do it, even greater responsibility before God. So verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. So the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, all his seed, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. He's saying Jew and Gentile alike. And he's talking about faith, not works. That faith rests on God and his promises alone. And you could kind of call it the, the 99-90 rule. That uh, someone who's 99 years old and, and his wife who's 90 are going to have a baby. God ensured that it was humanly impossible. How many times has God set up the humanly impossible in your life? You know what we do? We literally see the humanly impossible and try to work out a way that we can make it humanly possible. Let me just finagle this. Let me just work the system. Let me figure out a way around this. But here's a profile of faith right here before us. Here's a profile of faith. Faith is God-centered. It's God-centered. God is very prominent in these verses here that focus on the promise and the promise that Abraham believed, and he believed it against hope. It puts the spotlight on God, who's the only one who keeps his promises. Great biblical definition of faith, by the way, is found in Acts chapter 27, 25. Here is uh, Paul on his way to Rome. He's in a big storm in a ship out at sea. And here's what he tells them. Keep your courage. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. That's a great description of faith. Simply believing that things are and will be just like God says they are and will be. Simply taking God's word at face value. This is not, you know, God whispered in my ear and told me something subjectively, but he didn't tell you. This is, no, God has said this objectively in his word that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, that faith is what justifies, not works. That's why Galatians 3, 7 said that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Sons of Abraham. And then Romans 3.24 tells us that we are justified by faith as a gift, freely, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing to do with, any, with anything you could ever do. And look at that phrase, in order that, in this verse here. In order that. It calls us to examine the faith. It's a key phrase. In order that, the faith is resting on grace, the promise is resting on grace, and that we never could merit it's 100% God, zero us. And it is guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. So faith is trusting God when the way seems bleak and there is no possibility of rescue or resuscitation. God's guaranteed promise is received by faith in accordance with grace. The promise is certain, it is guaranteed. Why? Because God in his sovereign grace provides a way of salvation. And by the way, the power of salvation is not in our faith, but in God's grace. And so Abraham is being 
you know, trotted out here as the spiritual forerunner of every real believer. But think with me about what, who Abraham was before he was justified by faith. Do you know what he was? He was a pagan. He was idolatrous. He was an ungodly sinner who trusted God's gracious promise rather than his own efforts. And when you see these words, you know, promise and inheritance, it's telling you God's plan of salvation equals the promised inheritance. It's by faith. It's in contrast with works. And here's the example. Look at verse 17. Here's the example. As it is written. Now we're going to Genesis 17:5. So we've been quoting, Paul's been quoting Genesis 15. Now he's quoting Genesis 17, verse 5. I have made you the father of many nations. And it was in the presence of God in whom he believed. He believed God who gives life to the dead. Now Abraham was miraculously giving given Isaac the son of promise when it was humanly impossible. Abraham was as good as dead in terms of fathering a child was concerned. Hebrews 11 tells us that. So he is trusting him, God, who gives life to the dead. You've also got the deadness of Sarah's womb, Abraham's body being as good as dead, but God can infuse life where there is no life by his resurrection power. This is the point. Now, it's hard for us to grasp. We want to be able to say, well, A plus B equals C, and and this doesn't work that way. And God calls into existence the things that don't, don't exist. First thing you think of is creation, right? God's creating power. God's creative activity by which he created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God called what did not exist so that it came into existence. God, Abraham believed in the God who could raise the dead and create the world out of nothing. But there's an even better way to, to see this phrase calls into existence the things that do not exist. And it's this. God summoned that which does not exist as if it does exist. So his promise to summon nations and descendants from Abraham where none existed. So Abraham trusted that God could powerfully call descendants into existence even when they were not yet alive. This is the point. It's like the valley of dead bones that God brought back to life. He brings life from the dead. Regeneration. God's power to overcome death by giving life. Faith is in God who raises, even as verse 24 tells us, raises Jesus from the dead. Raised him from the dead. So God's guaranteed promises, by the way, do you notice, were written down? Did you notice that? As it is written? And I love how scripture perfectly harmonizes with itself. It's awesome. I think it is joyful to see that God says one thing in one place and see how it fits together so perfectly with all the other things he has said. And God's word is perfect, as Psalm 19 tells us. His his sovereign purposes are revealed in his word. His wisdom is expressed in his word. His love for us is expressed in his word. And he doesn't give us every detail of life, but he gives us his self-revelation that governs all of our life. The word of God. 
there is, by the way, one big reason why justification by faith is so under attack today. If you didn't know it was under attack, it has been under attack for a long time, and it's been under attack a lot today. Here is why. If you've ever wondered why is justification by faith so under attack, beside the fact that Satan doesn't want people to believe in the gospel and be saved, it is under attack today even from amongst those who who profess faith in Christ for this simple reason. They forgot to read their Bible. They forgot to go back and read the whole Bible and see that there's a golden thread of redemption and a golden thread of justification by faith all the way through. You can't deny it without just forgetting to go back and actually see what the Bible says and see how it all fits together. And in, some, in a small way, really, and actually in a big way, Paul is doing this for us. He is quoting Genesis 15.6. By the way, Genesis 15.6 is Paul's favorite Old Testament Bible verse. And the way you know is because how many times he quotes it or alludes to it. But he's quoting Genesis 15, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Psalm 32, and other places. Okay, verse 18. It says, in hope he believed against hope, that he should be the father of many nations. So Abraham persisted in hope when there was no reason humanly for hope. Think about all the things you're discouraged about in life, and you're like, I am tired of even waiting for that. And here is Abraham, who is persisting in hope when there's no human reason for hope. And remember what the promise was. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the seashore, and the guy's in his 90s, and his wife's around 90, and they don't have any kids. But he trusted that God could bring about in the future the promise that was made. And it says this in verse 18, as he had been told. What was he told? Now, he's, now Paul's back to Genesis chapter 15. He's quoting verse 5. So shall your offspring be. There it is again. God's promises are guaranteed by grace, received through faith, fully guarantees his promise, fully assured, even though there is this temptation on our part to try to get God's promise in our own way, in our own timing. So I, I've been thinking about Abraham's life a lot, obviously. You've got to wrestle with this text and go, wait, Abraham is getting, is getting name-checked all over the place. I better go brush up on Genesis. And so you go to Genesis 12, and you see that Abraham, when he was called was 75 years old. You see in chapter 15, he's probably around 76 at this point. I think, if I'm getting my math right, I don't know, but his faith there was counted as righteousness, and a covenant is made, and he's instantaneously justified by faith. So we know that. That's clear. But there is something, and I guess I'll say it this way, actually someone that I keep thinking about in this whole process. I've been wondering about it a lot. Seriously, a lot. Ishmael. Ishmael. So you go to Genesis 16, and you see that Abraham is about 86 years old, and Ishmael is born. Not the child of promise. Thought he was. Genesis 17, now Abraham's like, is 99 years old. And Isaac is promised by God by name. 
So you get this picture. As you're going through this, and you're thinking, well, if you look in Romans 4, God grants us full assurance of faith so we would believe his promises no matter what. And then you start going, wait a minute, though. What about Abraham, who's being trotted out as this amazing example of faith, which he is, but what about Ishmael? What happened there? And I would just say this. The Bible's not glossing over it. It's in there. Okay? This is very important. The promise is fully assured, but the temptation is to try to get God's promise in our own way or timing or strength. Because God's guaranteed promises can't be grasped unless they're grasped by faith. So the question is this. Did Abraham take things into his own hands and try to get the child of promise in his own strength? It looks as if he manufactured a way for God to keep his promise. So Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 16 now, Abraham thinks he knows the way the promise will come. And maybe he thought he was getting half a miracle here. Sarah couldn't have children. Abraham did father a child in old age. That's a miracle. And by the way, any human life is a miracle. Any baby being born is a miracle. And to be able to father a child at his age, that's an act of God, as is any conception, by the way. But I want you to think with me about how Abraham might have felt. It's been so long. God made this promise to me that I was going to have all these kids, and here I am, childless, but my name means one who has a lot of kids. Have you thought about that? Father of a multitude had none. And it probably only seemed right and sensible to take Hagar. Mind you, multiple wives was never approved or commanded by God or even condoned. It was not necessarily the right thing to do. It was the expedient thing to do, a matter of practicality of continuing the family line. Here's what one writer said about Ishmael. Ishmael was an error of Abraham's sinful contriving and human virility, not the divinely promised and provided heir that would come only through Sarah. Ishmael illustrates the product of legalistic human effort, whereas Isaac illustrates the product of God's sovereign and gracious provision. And this is interesting. Galatians 4.28. I know I told you to keep your marker in Galatians 3, but you can move into Galatians 4 if you'd like as well. Galatians 4.28 tells us this, that believers, because of their faith in Christ, are like Isaac, children of promise. So 13 years later, 13 years, Abraham's 99, God mercifully appears to him again and repeats the promise of multiplying his descendants. He's already got Ishmael. At this point, he changes Abraham's name. So he's being called Abram, father of many, to Abraham, father of a multitude of nations. So God's doubling down on this. He's saying, oh no, your name's not just father of many, but father of a multitude. I'm going to make you a father of a multitude of nations. So if Abraham was embarrassed by the name Abram, can you imagine how he felt about Abraham? Here's a really wealthy man who 
owns lots of livestock and lots of possessions and caravans coming through and stopping off at his place and paying their respects to him. And they're like, so what's your name? Abraham. Oh, where's your kids? Where's your kids? Where are they all? How could the promise be a son by Sarah, 90 years old, past the age of childbearing? And so Abraham says this to God in Genesis 17, 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Let him be the son of promise. God's response, Genesis 17, 21, he makes it very clear that no, You'll have a son by Sarah, and the birth will occur in one year, and you'll name him Isaac. Abraham learned a lesson that we need to learn. God's promises only come by his power, and our efforts to change his will are doomed. They dishonor him. They do not glorify him. Human effort is a form of works righteousness. And here's the point that's being made here. Using the kind of biographical statements about Abraham, God is not recognizing Ishmael as the son of this promise to Abraham because the son was naturally conceived. He will not recognize as spiritual children, here's the spiritual application, he will not recognize as spiritual children those who trust in their own goodness and accomplishments. Salvation is by grace and not works. We cannot get salvation by works We cannot get that promise by any effort of our own. And here you see this this illustration. Abraham tried to get the child of promise in his own way. We cannot get salvation promises on our own works. And by the way, you can't get any promise of God by your own works. God wants us to respond in faith. So he, Abraham, is corrected regarding Ishmael. And you wonder, why? This plays up the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Here's Abraham walking by faith. He's our example of faith. And sometimes he tripped and fell. He stubbed his toe just like we do. We are saved, but we still sin. This is like Peter walking on the water to Jesus, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he sees the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink. So the testimony is true. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness instantly and their struggle was real too there was growth to be had in abraham's life at one point looks like he got over his skis a bit he's figuring god needs a little help and the bible doesn't gloss it over because it says just because it says abraham believed god doesn't mean abraham perfect okay you believe god and you still sin on a daily basis Maybe not the high-handed sin of your pre-conversion days, but sin nonetheless. And you look at Abraham's life, and you got the Ishmael thing, but even before that, when he goes down to Egypt, and this is a whole other thing you got to study on your own, but let me just throw it out here. He gets a promise, and then he goes down to Egypt. And in Abraham's life, Egypt is code word for sin. And you'll notice, every time he goes down to Egypt, he's got to come back up and confess it. He was walking in the flesh. He made sinful choices, which is grievous, right? Right? It's discouraging, right? It's also normal. It's also normal. It's also real. 
Think about David being quoted in last week's passage, Psalm 32. Right before that, think of David's failings. But for God's grace. Think of Paul's unfaithfulness. Paul, who's being used by the Holy Spirit to write these words. Think of his unfaithfulness. Think of his carnal nature that he admitted. He confessed it. I'm the foremost sinner, and I'm doing what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I should do. Who's going to save me from this wretched body of sin? And, and you know, we are moving, we are moving uh, towards those fast-moving waters of Romans 6 and 7. This um, struggle that we have that is a mighty struggle with sin while still being saved. And we know every moment in this struggle, we know we do not deserve salvation. And at no, pro- no, no point in the process do we deserve salvation. All the way through the glorious, messy process of sanctification with its highs and lows and ups and downs and twos and fro's and victories and defeats. But I am seeing a picture of of salvation and grace. Here is Abraham justified instantly in chapter 15, sanctified progressively as things go on. Ten years pass since the promise. He has Hagar bear Ishmael, figuring that's what needs to happen. And we should be fair, very fair to the biblical characters, not expect more of them than we would do in a situation. But he was probably thinking, the promise is slow and it's appearing. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. No, no, Isaac. That's a picture of God's grace. That's a picture of our weakness and God's grace. That's a picture of God's grace is sufficient for you and his strength is made perfect in your weakness because the faith that we've been given is God-centered. It's God-initiated, it's God-sustained. It's God-centered. And his promises are guaranteed. And here's how it goes with God. Here's how it goes. Promise made, promise kept. Doesn't always go that way with us, but this is the way it goes with God 100% of the time. I want to take you to one more place. Genesis 15, again. You got your marker there, so you're good. Verse 17. Look at it with me real quick. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. And behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Here's this picture. Uh, Birds and animals cut in half and aligned in two rows with a path down the middle. A bloody scene. When covenants were made in those days, they would have a ceremony to observe, uh, to show what would happen if each party, if either of the parties failed to live up to their part of the bargain. And there was one ceremony that involved killing and cutting in half animals and laying the pieces in two rows side by side with a path in between. And this is the scene. And then what would happen is the two parties to the covenant would pass between the animals together and literally invoke a curse upon themselves and say, if I don't keep my part of this agreement, may the same thing that happened to these animals I'm walking through happen to me. And so God finishes his promise to Abraham with this ceremony. It's a theophany here, a visible revelation of God. God appears as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Fire symbolizing God's glory, displaying his character. But here's the big point. In this scene, only God passes between the animals. 
God alone passes between the animals. Abraham is on the sidelines. Abraham does not participate in this. God alone swears by himself that his promises will come to pass. He says, in effect, it's all on me if this doesn't happen. That gives us a lot of confidence. A sinful man is not being dependent on here. Holy God is. He will do everything he promises. And at times, we're going to be foolish. But God keeps his end of the bargain. And he fulfilled this by sending Jesus, who fully obeyed the Father and secured for us an eternal salvation, eternal covenant blessings. And so, literally, in undiminished glory, God is promising, assuring us, he will do all he promises. This is the message of Romans 4. And so we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in God's covenant love for all his people. Yes, we are tempted to try to do it our way and work the system and give God a boost tempted to take matters in our own hands, make an Ishmael of things. But here's, here's the closing thought I want you to take. It is not about our ability to keep covenant with God. It is about his ability to keep covenant with us. And therein lies our hope. And so Lord, we thank you that this knowledge of your faithfulness in keeping your promises Um, calms our souls, uh, encourages us, uh, comforts us, strengthens us in the faith. Lord, we know that your goal is to present every believer complete in Christ and that we will not do without anything we truly need in life. You will not leave us out in the cold spiritually and we will go through hardships absolutely, but you will be with us every step of the way. You uphold all things by the word of your power. You work all things after the counsel of your will and you're at work in us to will and do your good pleasure. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you work all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand with me?